Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show. With us today is Yekutiel Benyakov, otherwise known as Mike Guzowski. He used to be the chief of operations for Rabbi Meir Kahana and then later for Rabbi Benjamin Kahana. And in light of the current situation and some of the political correctness that still reigns in certain portions of Israel, we thought he would be a good person to interview. Yekutiel. Israelis are outraged over what happened on October 7th and want vengeance and an end once and for all to Arab terror. Unfortunately, Israel's government is unlikely to give it to them. When this war is over, we will still have 5 million brazen Jew-hating Arabs in the West Bank and Gaza who, judging from their past behavior, will continue killing approximately 20 Jews a year. This will never stop until proud Torah-believing Jews in the mold of Rabbi Kahana are in charge. But right now, the law essentially makes it illegal for them to run for Knesset. So I ask you, is anything being done to lift the ban on Kach? I don't think anything significant is being done to lift the ban against Kach and Kahana Chai. And it's not so much the ban against the parties, but it's the ban against speaking any reasonable words of truth that could present a blueprint of survival for the Jewish people and for Israel. That's the problem. I mean, you can call the party whatever you want to call it, but if nobody can speak the message, then it's unlikely that the message can ever be implemented. This is an old example, but I think it remains relevant. In the very beginning of the Second Intifada, Ariel Sharon ran for prime minister. Now, people used to say that Sharon was unelectable. Because of his past, he's too right-wing, he'll never be elected. And yet he was elected in the biggest landslide in Israeli history. So I think Israelis are hungry, and they want someone who will do what's right and, and speak the truth. But the law makes it illegal. And there seems like a vacuum there that could be filled if there's some sort of movement to fill it. Well, I think it's more likely that the solution will come from the grassroots up and not from the Knesset down, whatever the party is. And I think it's very likely that the ones that will implement a program similar to Rabbi Kahana's program are actually uh, the Israeli left and the uh, secular people in Israel. Eventually, it seems, things will get bad enough that people will uh, take matters into their own hands. They won't have all of the psychological issues that the Kahana people have because we've been so persecuted over the years, when their back is against the wall and it's a question of survival, I think people will do what needs to be done. So I would not give up hope on the people of Israel, and I wouldn't necessarily place my bet on the Kahana people, who are, you know, uh, we are so concerned about what people are going to do to us uh, if we just open our mouths that I I don't see us right now representing the solution uh, in action or in a political framework. You're saying because people like you over the years who have tried doing things, you just wind up getting arrested and hounded by the government? Well, you know, people that are uh, experienced and who have tried to speak out in the past and have been persecuted for it know very well that they can't openly speak out any message, any real message, any serious message that can bring about any serious change. So I don't see the people that are being watched closely and that are being persecuted politically to be the ones that will necessarily lead the charge. And uh, I think the Kahana people have had the opportunity to lead the charge over many years, and we don't see any serious, credible leader emerging that's going to lead that charge. And even if someone existed that would have those uh, capabilities, they would just lock them up in jail. 
But I see mainstream Israel and I see people on the Israeli left saying things that are far more uh, outrageous than things that we ever said, and they're getting away with it because their back is against the wall and people are feeling the brunt of Arab terror today in Tel Aviv, not just in Sterod and not just in Judea and Samaria, but throughout Israel. So uh, I think we're getting very, very close to the implementation of the uh, end game, the Kahana solution, but I don't necessarily see that being the Kahana people that will be leading those efforts. So you actually are cautiously optimistic that the Israeli government now will do the right thing? That I didn't say, <laughs> but that the Israeli people will force it upon the government or just take matters into their own hands. When you have the minister of police, Kobe Shabtai, saying the Arabs are happy, the Arabs in Israel rejoicing, no problem, put them all on buses and ship them out of here. You know, he can get away with saying things that are far more severe and serious than things that Rabbi Kahana said. You know, the people talk about killing Arabs, you know, people are talking about destroying Gaza, killing everybody there. These are things more extreme than Rabbi Kahana said. I'm not saying that Rabbi Kahana is obsolete, but I'm saying Things are moving and things have evolved in Israel. And uh, I think the masses of people are prepared to accept a Kahana-style, a Jewish Torah-style solution. And uh, I think that's where we're heading for. I think this war may very well turn into or lead into the final war here. People have, have, have had enough. And it doesn't look like the Arabs are about to lay down their arms. So it's only a question of time before uh, the people of Israel really rise up and start taking matters into their own hands. I mean, even now, the formation of all these militias throughout Israel, not militias, but they call Kitat Kornu, these emergency response teams. I mean, they're, you know, they're handing out guns left and right. People, they want to protect themselves. They realize that the government was not there for them. The army was not there for them on October 7th on Simchat Torah. And I think, uh, you know, as they say in Hebrew, the Asimon is dropped. And um, I think we're going to see good things come out of this. As sad, as sick, and as horrible as what we experienced on October 7th, I think there's a, a good possibility that there'll be some positive things that come out of this. You said the Atsimon has dropped? What was the word you used? The Asimon. Asimon used to be the little token that you would put in the, the public phones in Israel. Uh-huh. So there was an expression in modern Hebrew when the Asimon drops. And I think the Asimon dropped, people are beginning to understand the situation. It, they may not say Kahana was right, but in essence, that's the message you're hearing more and more on the streets in Israel. Do you think the anger will be sustained over you know, a longer period of time, or do you think maybe just after a few weeks people will get back to their old habits? I don't think they'll be given a chance to get back to their old habits, because I think the Arabs are hungry. They're hungry for Jewish blood, and they now see, like kind of like when Amalek challenged the Jewish people, they were the first to hit the vulnerable points of the Jewish people, and that gave others a green light. Well, what happened in Gaza was a green light. It's a green light for Hezbollah. It's a green light for the Arab terrorists in Yemen that are now firing rockets to to Eilat and to the Arabah. And I think they're hungry for blood. You know, everyone always said that the reason why the Arabs are fighting against the Jews is because they have no hope. Well, the exact opposite is true. When they have hope, when they see Jewish blood, they're thirsty for And um, I don't think they're going to lay down their arms. I think they're going to continue and they're going to intensify their efforts to murder Jews in Israel and around the world, by the way. I don't think that the Jews in the United States are immune. I think quite to the contrary. At least here, as bad as things are, as bad as the government does, uh, we have guns and we have an army. And uh, a few little changes here and there, and God willing, the army will be moving in the right direction with the right intensity to deal with the problem. But what does a Jew in Brooklyn do when the the local Muslims or anti-Semites and neo-Nazis start rioting and start killing Jews? 
And we already see the beginning of that happening, the extreme increase in anti-Semitism in the States. So, you know, I, Americans, Jews, they feel very, very bad and they're, they're worried about what's going to happen in Israel. I'd also be worried about, very worried about what's going to happen in the States and in England and in France, etc. You talked about the people taking matters in their own hands. This is one of the lines that Rabbi Kahani used to say, both father and son. But back then, the Arabs in the West Bank and Gaza basically had rocks and maybe also machine guns. I don't even know if they had that at the time. And so there, the people could fight back on an equal plane. At this point, the Arabs have rockets. So the solution really can't just come from regular people. It has to be an army solution to really put an end to what's going on. Well, absolutely. But at the end of the day, Israel is a little bit of a democracy. In other words, there are elections held here. And uh, at the end of the day, the political forces that are in power will have to follow suit with what the majority of the people are demanding, if not now, then later. And as I mentioned, I don't see the Arabs uh, disappearing and I don't see them laying down their arms. I see them intensifying and unifying their efforts to murder Jews. So Israel will have no choice uh, but to take a stand. You know, in some ways, a frightened dog is more dangerous than a, a stable attack dog. Why? Because the frightened dog, when his back is against the wall, he'll do crazy things to protect himself and to survive. And I think that's what we see a frightened Israel that's frightened of world opinion, that's frightened of the Arabs, that's frightened of sanctions, that's frightened of isolation. But we see this frightened creature with their backs against the wall. You know, the Arabs will murder us. They will shecht us. We've been reminded that if they have the opportunity, they will kill men, women, children. They will behead uh, babies. They will rape the women and take them into captivity. Our worst nightmares has come true, and people are reminded of things that maybe Jews have forgotten. You know, uh, the mob lynchings in the 1920s and 1930s in Israel. And I think now that people understand that it's us or them, uh, the average person is beginning to understand that. And they're worried about their communities, and not just in Judea and Samaria. Throughout the Negev and throughout the north, I mean, northern Israel has been evacuated. Southern Israel has been evacuated. These people are now living in hotels in Tel Aviv and by their friends and kibbutzim in the center of the country. Well, the Arabs are hitting the center of the country. They're hitting Tel Aviv. They're hitting Jerusalem. They're even hitting the Arabah. They're even hitting Eilat with rockets. So it's us or them. And uh, a frightened Jew with his back against the wall can be very, very dangerous. Don't get me wrong here. The Arabs are controlling the intensity of this conflict. But I think they may have made a mistake. I hope that they made a major mistake. I hope that those 1,400 lives that were taken will not be in vain and that Israel will now take a stand to protect itself and to do that which it has to be doing. And also, don't get me wrong, the actions that Israel needs to take will likely bring about isolation and sanctions upon the state of Israel. It's the Torah way, and in this case, the only logical way to survive, taking the steps that we need to take, versus isolation, sanctions, and perhaps international intervention to try and curb Israel from using the force that it needs to take. But it's a force that we must take to survive. I think Rabbi Kahani needs to point out it's a bracha, that we're a nation dwelling alone. But even if you leave that on the side for a second, which God forbid you shouldn't do, but even if you leave that aside, I always say, I and I think most normal people would prefer having a safe country that's a third world country than having an unsafe country, which is first world. So yes, with sanctions, you become a little poorer, your economy is not as good, your standard of living is not as great, but at least you could walk out at night and be safe versus living in a richer country where you no sanctions, but you can't walk out on the street at night. Which normal person wouldn't prefer safety and pride than, uh, you know, it's a little bit higher living standard. But I want to ask you about Itamar Ben-Gavir, because he's, people say his heart is in the right place. Maybe he doesn't say the right things because he was scared of being banned from Knesset. But I would think for someone like him, this would be a perfect opportunity. 
to speak, you know, harsh statements and pressure Netanyahu from the right and call for bombing Gaza from the air and not going with ground troops and, and risking we have 29 soldiers dead already, which is not necessary. We could have been bombing from the air. This is a perfect opportunity for Ben Kavir to speak up and he's nowhere to be found. I think you're right on that, Elliot. But the issue is not Ben Gvir or not Ben Gvir, or will he take things a little bit more to the right? So instead of 29 soldiers being dead, it will be 27 soldiers. And don't get me wrong, every soldier is a whole world, and God forbid that we should suffer more losses. But it's not about Ben Gvir, Bibi, or Barak, you know, the three Bs. There's no major difference between them. It's about the Torah way or the anti-Torah way. The question is, Israel either will do what needs to be done, and by doing what needs to be done, it means perhaps Israel against the world. Either you have that faith and you have that courage and you do what needs to be done, or you don't. It's not about, okay, let's take away some more pito from the Arabs, or they have less shower time, or uh, Israel will fight the battle a little bit better, a little bit wiser, risk soldiers a little bit less. And it's not about two more settlements or two less settlements. I mean, the difference between Bibi and Barak and Benvir is whether we can build another two settlements or another three before we anger the world, or whether we can use this much more firepower or another few airstrikes uh, versus a few less airstrikes, that's not the issue. The issue is doing what needs to be done and destroying Hamas, building the Temple Mount, driving out the Arabs. Either you've got that faith, either you're going to go the Torah route, or you're not going to do it. And that's the problem here. It's about two conceptions. It's about the conception that says that standing alone is the greatest curse, is the biggest strategic threat to Israel, versus the people that say, no, the opposite is true. By not following God's Torah and by not doing the obvious things that we need to do, that's going to bring upon tragedy unto the people of Israel. You know, I once went to the high court of Israel, and I, I put in a petition to the Bagat. This was when they were releasing the terrorists that had come in from Turkey on the boats that were coming from Turkey that they wanted to bring emergency aid to the Arabs. I don't know if you remember, this was a few years back. And they started to release these terrorists. And I went to court saying that there was no due process here and that they can't have one law for the Jews and another law for the Arabs and for terrorists. And they, these terrorists should be brought to trial. And the judges agreed with me. They said, what you're saying from a legal standpoint is correct. There has to be equality before the law. But you have to understand. And they said this. They said, for you, the curse of Bilam is a blessing. But for us, it's a curse. And there will be no greater threat to the state of Israel. And so we have to step in, even though it's true that the law would really require for these terrorists to be brought to trial. So that's what we have. We have two worldviews. One that says God's way, even if it isolates us and pins us against the world, is the route we have to take. And the other way that says that that's the greatest strategic threat to the state of Israel. For the Israeli left, for the Shimbet, for the Mossad, until now, they believe that the Kahana people, or the Hilltop youth, are a greater strategic threat to the state of Israel than Iran. Well, I think that's changing. And that's changing because it has to change, because people have rockets falling on their heads. So now they have to either deal with the situation, do what needs to be done, or accept more rockets and self-annihilation. The Torah solution, in your view, is kicking out the Arabs? Yeah, you know... Sometimes the Torah is like a hook. It's like something that doesn't make sense. It's like something we have to follow because that's just the way it is. That's what God brought upon us. But this is something which is purely logical. And any normal person would understand that, that it's us or them. These people, they are Amalek. They will wipe us off the face of the earth if they're given that opportunity. So it's either stand up and fight back 
or die. It's pure logic at this point. You don't have to be a Kahanist. And that's really what I'm saying. I think the solution may come from the streets of Tel Aviv, from left-wing secular Jews, perhaps even more so than people that are loyal to the uh, Kahana philosophy that have been so persecuted until now that they're not so readily going to come out and speak the truth. But I see other people speaking the truth and even going further. You know, Rabbi Kahana is a little bit obsolete. It was so much before his time. If you read Rabbi Kahana's writings, he wasn't even really worried about the Arabs of the West Bank. He was worried about the Israeli Arabs. It didn't occur to him that this, that this riffraff would actually pose a threat to the state because <laughs> they really are riffraff. That's how pathetic the state is, unfortunately, is they, they let this riffraff become the as essential threat. Rabbi Kahana was worried about the Israeli Arabs. The other people, it was like, you know, almost obvious that you should not let them take over your lives, but that's what Israel has managed to do. Um, you're talking about the Torah solution. I was reading the Parsha last week, and Avraham and Lot, these are friendly people, right? An uncle and nephew. And Avraham just says to him, look, our shepherds are not getting along. Let's just separate. And this is a solution between two people who are relatives. They're not enemies. And he says, look, we're not getting along. I'll go right. You go left. Or you go left. I'll go right. And Shalom Yisrael. And when kids are fighting in Shul, you, the father sits them one on one side, one on the other side. You don't put two people together if they're fighting against each other. It seems like, a, like you said, normal, logical, not a chok. Absolutely. Now, the Israeli Arabs, of course, it's a very, very serious issue here because the more involved they get taking to the streets and attacking Jews, and they are intensifying their efforts to murder Jews and to break into settlements and to shoot into settlements. So, yeah, it's definitely the major threat here. Israel could deal with Gaza in, in five minutes if they wanted to. But the problem here within Israel is getting worse and worse. And obviously, every minute that passes that we don't deal with the problem, it's only going to get worse. You know, everyone would say to Rabbi Kahana, yeah, we could have done that in 1967, but now how can we do it? You know, soon they're going to be saying, uh, we could have done that in 2023, but now, you know, 2030, that's already impossible. The sooner we deal with the problem, the easier it will be to deal with. And of course, it's getting more and more difficult. We're suffering needless bloodshed, and we're going to only suffer more until we adhere to the Torah solutions which Rabbi Kahana broadcasted loud and clear. And we would expect his students not to be frightened and to speak out as best they can, to try and direct and lead the people to some degree. But as I mentioned, I don't necessarily see that solution coming from his students or from a bank bureau or somebody like that. Talk, if you would, a team bit about Rabbi Kahana. What was he like as a person? You worked with him personally? Uh, well, Rabbi Kahana was, uh, of course, he was a Torah scholar. He was a brilliant man. He was, he was funny, a great orator. He was a great writer. People would just want to be in his presence. Like when I was living in the States and active with JDL, when Rabbi Kahana would come to New York, all of a sudden everyone would come out of the woodwork. Everyone was a JDL activist. You know, instead of having two and a half people and, and, uh, and two cats at a demonstration, it would be, you know, hundreds of people coming around. They just wanted to be with him. It was just so charismatic and it was just so exciting and interesting to be with him. And he made so much sense. And he was able to have an impact on so many people, so many people that he brought closer to Judaism, so many people that he brought to Israel. And he was uh, definitely a very, very uh, special uh, person. He was a perfectionist. You had to get it right or he would get upset. But uh, he was fighting for the Jewish people. He was fighting the war of Mashiach. He was fighting to bring Kiddush Hashem, sanctification of God's name, to this world. Uh, he could not see or tolerate Hashem, desecration of God's name, Jewish weakness, Jews being beaten, and everything he did was, he was motivated by Torah and his love of Jews, uh, intense love of Jews, as he would say, 
let's not pay a lip service to Avat Yisrael as most rabbis do. Everybody loves Jews. Such a lovely thing to talk about. Loving Jews is very sweet, uh, but very few are prepared to put their money where their mouth is to pay the price, to sit in block traffic or go to jail or be beaten on behalf of that, that love of Jews and their willingness to sacrifice. And he was a Jew who put his money where his mouth was. He was prepared to sacrifice. And ultimately, he sacrificed his life, as did his son, uh, Benjamin. How did you first get involved or meet him? Well, my brother had gotten involved with JDL. And suddenly, instead of his name being Stephen, you know, he used his birth name, Shmuel. He would get upset when we would call him Stephen. He was becoming much more religious. And uh, he decided he's going to Israel. And he would bring home Rabbi Khanna's books. And I was in Yeshiva at the time. I would read the books and show them to my Rebbe in, in Yeshiva. And they didn't have any answers to Rabbi Kahana's uncomfortable questions for comfortable rabbis and Jews. Some even agreed with what he was saying. And uh, later I had the opportunity to meet with Rabbi Kahana after my brother had made Aliyah to Israel. Some of his uh, fellow JDL uh, friends enlisted me into JDL. The 70s, the 80s, what years were these? We're talking about late 70s, early 80s. Where were you in Yeshiva? I was in Shiva Farakway, and my rabbi's big rabbi, uh, Talmud Chacham, Rabbi Kalish, and he told me Rabbi Kahana was his rabbi for Avat Yisrael. So he could see a Haredi rabbi, you know, Yeshiva guy, who says, yeah, Rabbi Kahana, yeah, I don't, he didn't have a bad thing to say about Rabbi Kahana, and uh, he's his rabbi for Avat Yisrael. He teaches us all what the essence and the meaning of love of Jews is. So that was enough of a gushpanka, a seal of approval for me to continue. It was a little bit difficult for being a Yeshiva boy to deal with uh, what outsiders may call JDL thugs and joining up with them. But, uh, you know, I became a Yeshiva JDL thug, too. I was active in demonstrations and all kinds of sit-downs and other activities with JDL. Eventually made Aliyah to Israel and was active with the Kach movement. And, um, you know, no question about it, he was a great man. And I think more and more people understand that. But it's not about Kahana. And Rabbi Kahana would say this. It's about Torah. It's about Judaism. It's about Jewish survival. And so obviously uh, Jews with any sense will embrace his message to some extent and follow his blueprint of survival, whether or not they heard it from him. As I mentioned, you know, nature is, t is taking its uh, course and more and more people are reaching these conclusions. How did you become his chief um, operating officer? I forget or the exact title. I forget what it was. Well, I was very, very active with him. I think Rabbi Kahana saw that uh, he can rely on me, uh, that I'm a, you know, a loyal uh, follower. I wouldn't say that I agreed with him 100% everything that he did or said. I didn't look at Rabbi Kahana as if he was a, a god. I looked at him like he was a great Jewish leader, and we definitely followed his cue. And I, you know, I listened to him, even if it was things that I didn't really think were the best path to take. And I think he saw that. He saw that I was a loyal follower and semi-competent. So, uh, you know, he realized that Okay, this is a good guy to, to lead operations. Uh, what kind of things would you do for him? Well, in the final years, it was basically just street rallies and parlor meetings. He wasn't doing like illegal stuff, planting bombs and, you know, uh, personally taking Arabs and driving them out of the country. But, you know, he was speaking his message, which was difficult enough. And there were enough obstacles placed in his way. It was not an easy task even just to go out to the street corners and speak that message. But I would be the one to put in the request to the police and organize the sound systems and the posters and whatever needed to be taken in logistics to have these things. And he would do multiple rallies once or twice a week in major cities. And um, 
He was very, very popular. People loved to hear him speak, even those that disagreed with him admitted that it was a good out, you know, much better than going to the movies or somewhere else, let's go hear Rabbi Kahana, you know? And a lot of them didn't just go to hear him, they eventually became convinced. Maybe 10 minutes after he left, they would again accuse him of being a fascist and a Nazi, but they definitely enjoyed his speech. Um, a lot of people would come to protest without even listening, without even giving him a chance, you know, to try and silence him. There was tremendous, tremendous opposition to Rabbi Kahana on the part of Israeli left and various politicians that organized big rallies against him. But uh, that's most of what we were doing, mostly writing and speaking. What do you think would have happened had he lived into the Oslo years? I think he probably would have died of a heart attack or stroke watching his prophecies come true. I always say he either would have been prime minister or in jail. I don't see anything in between. The problem is these things don't happen immediately. Oh, jail happens immediately. They just pick you up and put you in jail. Uh, but... Uh, as far as being prime minister, there's a process. And I don't see that having happened that quickly. I mean, ultimately, you know, if he would live today, what would he be? Um, 80? No, now, he, no, not, now he'd be 91 already. But Yeah, so I don't know uh, how active a prime minister he would be. And again, I don't see him, you know, he had the suit, he had the honor, he had the privilege to die al Kiddush Hashem. I mean, of course, Rabbi Hanna would always say, I'd much rather live al Kiddush Hashem and do the right thing than have to die al Kiddush Hashem, but I'm prepared to die al Kiddush Hashem. And he died sanctifying God's name. And uh, he didn't die, you know, having to watch what's going on around him. You know, God took him out of that misery. And, uh, of course, he's a Melitz Yosher, as they say in Shemayim, with all the other great rabbis and, and Jews from Jewish history. Hopefully, in some way, they're praying and appearing before the heavenly court to try and sway things in favor of a Jewish victory and the bringing of uh, Mashiach and final redemption to the Jewish people. At the end of the day, it's all a matter of conception, though. The question is, when that Asimon falls and the Jewish people are prepared to take those actions of faith that could bring about isolation and other uh, grave problems for the people of Israel, when they have that willingness to do that, then the Mashiach will come and it will be over. You know, the only difference between Mashiach being here and not being here is just that state of mind, the readiness to take a stand. Because whenever the Jews finally agree to fight, they always win. And it's a great miracle when they finally reach that conclusion that we can do it, that we need to do it, that we will do it, and do it. But once they decide to do it, we will win. Let's hope that moment of, of action comes uh, sooner than later. And I, and I think we're approaching that willingness of Jews to act. God willing, and thank you so very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Nice meeting you. I've read about you, never met you, thank though. You. So now we sort of met through the vehicle of the internet. And I've read your articles and, and materials, so it's, it's an honor to meet you as well. All right, that does it for us. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing to it and giving it a good rating and a nice review if you're so inclined. I hope you enjoyed the episode and have a great day or a great night, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. <laughs>